Amen. You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. If you're using that blue Bible in front of you, it's page 965. 2 Corinthians 4. Brothers, sisters, I would encourage you, I implore you to keep your Bibles open through this whole sermon, homily, uh, however you want to call it. So I'm going to be talking about all 18 verses. Yes, we will accomplish this within 30 minutes, trust me. And before we actually dive into 2 Corinthians 4, let me tell you some things. Notice at the very beginning, the very first, very first verse, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. My friends, the Apostle Paul had every reason under the sun to lose heart. He had tons of reasons. Think about this letter. This letter is being written to a fickle congregation, a congregation that was enamored with high-powered, top-notch orators who were all glitzy and glamorous. Men whom he will call later in chapter 10, 11, and 12 the super apostles in a disparaging letter. In fact, a large portion of 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, deals with this exact problem. So notice, they didn't listen to him. And so he has to write a second letter. And this letter, 80% of it, 80% of it, 11 chapters out of 13 is on this one subject, dealing with the super apostles and how the people that he loves are not listening to him and are judging him or gauging him by the super apostle. That's disheartening, but if that isn't disheartening enough, this went on multi-generationally, and so a, few, a generation or so later, an elder from the church in Rome named Clement, Clement of Rome, had to write this church another letter in 95 AD because the young people in the church said, oh, the elders are all crabby and crotchety and they're not cool. Let's get rid of them. And they threw all the elders out and Clement had to write them and say, uh, that's not cool, right? I mean, just think how disheartening all of this is. And then it's even worse. On top of all of this, there's the obvious empirical, observable, categorical reasons for Paul to lose heart in his service to Christ. He will mention some of them in broad generalities down in verses 7 through 11 when he talks about being afflicted in every way, uh, being uh, perplexed, persecuted, and so forth, bearing about in the body the death of Jesus all day long. But he's been talking about it since chapter 1 when he says in the very beginning of chapter 1, he says, look, it was so bad in Asia, we despaired of life. He will continue to tell them how disheartening the situation was later in chapter 6 when he will talk about going through afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, etc. And then he will lay it out even bigger when you get to chapter 10 and 11 when he talks about being beaten to smithereens by the Jewish elite, being shipwrecked, being stuck out on the sea day and night, hungry, thirsty. Paul had every reason under the sun to be disheartened. We, on the other hand, as soon as the oldest woman in our church complains about something in church, we pull out our resignation letter immediately. You know what I'm saying? He had every reason to be disheartened. And at the very center of all of his reasons to lose heart was this congregation he loved so deeply and so dearly. They didn't listen to him. Paul also had his own entrenched inadequacies and inefficiencies. 
He's been saying this since chapter 2 when he said, who's sufficient for this ministry? Who is sufficient for these things? And he would go on to say, not me. Not my skill set. Not my gifts. Not my abilities. No one. I'm not sufficient. And then he would finally say that sufficiency really is the gracious gift of God, such as the confidence that we have through Christ. Our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. And so in chapter 4, Paul will explain why he did not lose heart. And he had every reason under the sun to lose heart. Why he did not lose heart. And it all revolves around one theme in three parts. This ministry, this treasure, this light momentary affliction. So brothers, read with me as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Follow along. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always, always, always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was written in Psalm 116, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we, have also, so we also speak. No, we. But he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers, sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, who makes us sufficient in your world rescue operation, help us to come away this day with heart. Amen. You may be seated. You don't know me very well. I get really, really loud because I'm not mad at anybody. I just get super duper excited. If that bothers you, just put your fingers in your ears. It's okay. All right? 
I do. I just get really excited, and this is an exciting passage. I want you to notice first off, and really the whole the, the, what I gave you is the background to this passage. First, Second Corinthians four is really the illustration. I'm not the best at illustrations. It is the illustration of this whole passage. So look, first notice the ministry in verses one through six. Notice how Paul begins. Therefore, based on everything I've said in chapter one, two, and three. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In all of chapter 4, Paul is developing how this ministry is God's gift and why he does not lose heart in the ministry. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, you have to stop a moment and ask, what does losing heart look like? Well, he gives you two hints there in the rest of verse 1 and into verse 2. We do not lose heart, therefore we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Losing heart looks like what the super apostles, that's what Paul's really concerned about, what these super apostles, who are really glitzy and glamorous and great orators, what these glitzy super apostles really capitalize on. Right? That's how he puts it. That's what he's describing here, is that uh, we refuse to practice, uh, excuse me, we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to wordsmith, we refuse to, to manipulate, and we refuse to play mind games with people. We avoid sexual immorality and all those other things. That's what he's saying. That's what it looks like to lose heart. The second part of what it looks like to lose heart is what he says when you get to verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways and refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. That's what the super apostles are doing. To avoid the hard passages of scripture, let's try to soften things and do an end run around. We want to build crowds, we don't want to build a congregation, so let's try to schmooze this side over here, we'll leave that alone. That's what losing heart looks like, or part of what it looks like. So notice how Paul puts it, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so the reality is, and contrary to what the super apostles are after, the reality is the reason why we have difficulties in the ministry is verse 3 and 4. And what does he say? He says in verse 3 and 4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Present act of ongoing tense. In their case, the God of this world is blind to the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the Lord Christ, who is the image of God. The reason why we have difficulty sometimes is because we're idiots. Let's just be honest. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm a recovering ministerial idiot, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes we have problems because we're our own worst enemies. But more often than not, we're having problems because. The God of this world is blinding people's eyes so they cannot see and hear. There's the reality. So what does Paul do in the midst of what could be discouraging? Notice that Paul actually is very settled in his verse 5 and 6. And you've got to hear how he's actually pushing against the super apostles. The very first thing he says in verse 5 is this. What we proclaim is not ourselves. Did you get that? What we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not about you. It's not about me. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but what? Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Now that's a very political statement because there's really one person at that moment who was claiming to be soter kai kurios, 
Savior and Lord, and that was Caesar. And so you hear what Paul is saying. What we proclaim can be considered treasonous in our political environment. Donald Trump is not Lord. Joe Biden is not Lord. It's Jesus Christ who is Lord, and that's what we proclaim with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he goes on to talk about how God in that first day of creation spoke and said, let there be light. He says, and that's what God has done through this ministry, through the word of this ministry. He has spoken into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As glorious as God's glory was in the face of Moses, think about chapter 3. As glorious as God's glory was in the face of Moses, and it was glorious. This is even more glorious. God's eternal and only begotten Son shines the light and the glory of God unstoppably, indefatigably, forever. So, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Which brings Paul then to describe this ministry as a treasure. That's what he's talking about in verse 7. Having this treasure. What treasure, Paul? What I just got done talking about. This ministry that's given to us by the grace of God. This ministry that is all about Jesus Christ as Lord. This ministry where God is actually through the word. has spoken to our hearts to shine the glory of the knowledge of God in, in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the treasure. We have this treasure. Having this treasure. And jars of clay. Well, why would God do that? So to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to whom? Us. You hear how he's pushing against the super apostles here? How the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Wow. And so, Paul began this chapter, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, and now he is capitalizing on what kept him from losing heart, and it's here in verses 7 through 12. It was in the midst of Paul's inability and incapabilities, Paul says, that the life, the vitality of Christ risen from the grave came through most glorious. We care about in our bodies. We care about in our bodies the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. Notice that Paul recognized that this was God's predetermined decree, his intentional plan to have this treasure in jars of clay, to have this treasured ministry housed in fragile men, in men who are unglamorous jugs of mud. That's how I always put jars of clay, jugs of mud. Right? That way you don't confuse me with some rock group or something, right? In jugs of mud. Why? Why did God do that? To make the brilliance of the surpassing power that belongs to God and comes from God most obvious. This is why Paul didn't lose heart. In fact, the whole point of verses 7 through 9, the whole plan of God is to use such flimsy, friable, frail people like us to do things far more beautiful than would be humanly natural. Do things to us that are more beautiful than are humanly natural. So instead of being swallowed up in the moment with all of the affliction, the crushing, the complexity, the persecution, the strickenness, 
Notice that his confidence is upward. All that language in verse 10 through 11. Yeah, we're carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus, Christ risen from the dead on the third day, that that life, that heavenly life of Jesus would flow through us and be exhibited in us. So his, his confidence is upward and his hope is onward. When you get down to verse 12 through 15, you can't miss it. He talks about, yeah, just like the scripture says, we believe and so we speak, we spoke. And so what did he say? And so we believe, we know that God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us from the dead with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. And then he says in verse 15, I think verse 15 may actually be close to the heart of this letter. He says, for it is all for your sakes. It's all for your sake." So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Notice that. All of this that I'm going through, this whole ministry, filled with all the disheartening and dispiriting part of it, all of this is for your sake. Why? So that as grace extends to more and more people through you, the church, it will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let me put it to you in a different way. When I do pre-marriage classes, I often ask the young couple, what's the chief end of your marriage? And the Presbyterians light up and they say, I don't know, to the Lord, find God, enjoy him forever. Bingo. But notice what Paul is saying. What's the chief end of your women's ministry? What's the chief end of your, of your Sunday school teaching? What's the chief end of your deaconing, your ruling eldering, your pastoring? What's the chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's not to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But then Paul goes further. What's the chief end then of your church? It's all for your sake. What's the chief end of your church? To have a big name so everybody knows. No. To be known as the most socially just church ever. No. To be the most truly reformed church cathedral ever. No. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end. And that's what Paul's talking about. So, get back to my notes. Sorry. Stay in your box. Stay in my box. Which then brings Paul to his climactic thought about this ministry and this light momentary affliction. And that's verses 16 to 18. And here in verses 16 to 18, Paul is echoing the sacred songwriter, the psalmist in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my, is, God is my portion forever, right? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what he's referring to. So we do not lose heart. So our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And think about who wrote this and when he wrote it. He's probably about 60-ish. Now, some of you can say an amen here, right? Remember those things you did when you were kids? Like that motorcycle accident when you were 14? And the other one when you were 16? And it comes back to haunt you when you're 61. That TBI, that traumatic brain injury you got when you were in Iraq and Afghanistan. It comes back to haunt you as you get older. When you fell off that oil rig trying to escape a fire, thinking about somebody talking earlier today, 
comes back to haunt you later on. Paul went through the grinder. Just go read the book of Acts. Go read 2 Corinthians 11. He went through the grinder. In fact, at one point he was stoned. And I don't mean he was using weed either. I mean he was stoned with rocks and left for dead. Brother, that has long-lasting repercussions physically. So when he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, he's talking from experience. Though his physical and mental capacities are, were diminishing and waning and weakening, yet God had turned what was normally should have been discouraging into something that was encouraging. God was growing the man unseen who looked, who looked to be fading away the seed. So whatever the affliction was, the seed, and what he's referring to here is this light momentary affliction. He's primarily referring to the ministry is a light momentary affliction. But whatever else the affliction was, the seed, it was really short-lived compared to the final, unending, substantive end result of the unseen. The way forward is summarized in the next chapter, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7. So we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's just be honest, brothers, sisters. We walk by sight and not by faith. Remember when you had that Sunday school class and only three people showed up? And you were ready to resign, right? You remember that? Remember that time you preached that one sermon you thought was going to bring revival? And people walked out and said, uh, I don't have a clue what you just said. Remember that? Do you, do you remember that? Am I the only one that preaches those kinds of sermons? Come on, people. Yeah. So think about it. We walk by sight and not by faith. We get discouraged because we're walking by sight and not by faith. And Paul's whole point is, here's how I kept from losing heart. It all had to do with Jesus. And I walked by faith and not by sight. The point that Paul makes here is true. True. No matter what we, the deeply loved children of God, are going through. If you ever read 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 to one of your parishioners in the hospital, it's a good verse, set of verses to read to them in the hospital. It's true. No matter what we're going through. And so take heart. If that's you, if you're not a minister or an elder or a deacon or whatever, it's true. Take heart. But notice that Paul is primarily referring to his ministry. This light momentary affliction. And what is this light momentary affliction doing? What is that ministry situation doing to you? What is it as an elder and you just feel frustrated? What is that doing to you? What does Paul say? For me, for us, an eternal weight of what? Glory. Paul knew his Hebrew, by the way. Those of you caught this. You know the word kavod? Remember the two sets of definitions? Weighty and glorious. Right? Glory. He's playing on that word. He's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That ministry situation. That church. That Sunday school class. That service you're giving as a deacon, that shepherding you're doing as an elder is preparing for you, as grievous as sometimes it can, can be, is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Praise the Lord. 
There were obvious, empirical, observable, categorical reasons for Paul to lose heart in his service to Christ before Christ. Nevertheless, he did not lose heart because he was not looking at the things which are seen, which are all transient, but he was looking at that which is unseen, which is eternal. And so his ministry, in his ministry, he walked by faith and not by sight. My friends, we have been conditioned in almost a Pavlovian way. Remember Pavlov, right? Ring the bell, the dog slobbers, right? Remember that? Right, we've been conditioned in an almost Pavlovian way to gauge our ministry by the visible, by the number of nickels and noses. It's in our denominations, it's in our seminaries, it's in our American drinking water, it's on our airwaves, it's seen around our internet connections. Even AT&T made it their campaign ad slogan one year. Bigger is better. That was their old slogan. I remember when Ted and I were at RTS, and I love RTS, so this is not a shame on RTS. But we were at RTS together, there's a couple of other of you here as well. And I remember they would have these guest preachers come in for these conferences. Do you remember some of this? You don't remember the church. <laughs> Ted slept through those, it's okay. <laughs> they'd bring these guys in, and they would always introduce them. This is Pastor So-and-so. When he got to his church in Nashville, it had 100 people. But right now, it's 5,000 people. The moment it came home for me is when they brought, after all those guest preachers, they invited a guy in from England. I can't remember his name. And they, he'd written several books that were published by Banner of Truth, and they brought him in. And that way they introduced him was, well, Pastor So-and-so has been at his church in England for 36 years. It started with 30 people. It's still got 30 people. But he wrote a lot of books. And that's when it went, oh, my goodness. We've been conditioned to gauge the value, the work of our ministry by nickels and noses, by billfolds and bodies. But the principle Paul is sketching out here is that even in ministry, we're not to be looking at the observable, innumerable, and countable. Because it's truly transient. I hope you hear it. It's transient. I'm speaking from the history of this church, this congregation here, just within the last 20 years. It's transient. There's just all kinds of things out of your control. And right now, if your church is growing, God bless you. I am so pleased for you. I'm pleased for River Oaks and all the church planting. But it's transient. The geography, the dem demography, all of that is going to change. It will change. There are things completely out of your control. You're going to end up having... That deacon or that Sunday school teacher who's going to sexually molest kids in your church and is going to be probably mishandled maybe sometime. It's going to blow the top off your church and that will be the end of all that growth. Or you're going to have that big camp um, blowout where you take all the kids on the church bus to go camping and then there's going to be a horrible accident and somehow you're going to get blamed. Your church will be blamed for it. And it, it's all really transient. We've got to recognize that. And then, and then you're going to get old. There's the other part. You're going to get old. And you're going to get slower. It's just all transient. So we look beyond to what God is doing that is normally unseen, to the way that God is renewing the inner self day by day, to the display of, God, of the glory of God through us jars of clay, to the unending Form, formidable resurrection life of Jesus manifested when, when death looks to be the natural, automatic, immediate, or near immediate outcome. 
you know, we just walked through COVID. You remember how many people said, and they were Christians, a lot of them were Christians, oh, it's going to be the end of the church as we know. Do you remember that? Does anybody remember that? I remember that. Guess who prevailed? The one who said, the gates of hell will never prevail against my church. And here we are. Our churches are still here. May not be what they were before, but praise the Lord. Jesus is faithful. And there's our confidence. And so know that the light momentary affliction you're going through in serving Christ is actually preparing an eternal weight of glory as you look not to the things that are seen, whether it's nickels and noses or whatever else, all of which is transient, but as you look to the things that are unseen, to the su surprising power of God in Christ displayed in stunning ways through you, in your congregations, no matter how big or how little, which is eternal. So brothers, if, I, if you hear me say nothing, walk by faith and not by sight. Oh Lord, thank you that you have given us this ministry. Forgive us that we often have lost heart. I'm sure if I were to poll people in secret here and ask how many of you already had your resignation letter in your same file on the computer, there'd be quite a few. How often, Lord, we have lost heart. And honestly, Lord, we do. We are just enamored with the visible, with that which we can see, with that which we can count and number. And so, Lord, forgive us for that. Lift our hearts. Help us to take heart. Though we may walk day by day displaying the death of Jesus through our lives, oh, may the life of Jesus gloriously shine through. So, Lord, help us to take heart, looking ever and always to Jesus. That the chief end of our ministry, deacons or elders or pastors or Sunday school teachers or whatever, would always be to glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name we pray.